Hey everyone, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this show as a free and independent educational resource, and you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a monthly donation at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Jason and Bill for their recent contributions. You can also make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. If you're a fan of this show, you're probably a fan of educational podcasts in general, so I encourage you to check out Lyceum, a new podcast app that curates and builds communities around educational audio. You can find Words for Granted and other great language and linguistics shows in the collection Words with Friends on the Discover page of the app. Go to lyceum.fm to learn more. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. All right, let's get on to today's show, part six in a series on the evolution of English idioms. What do a Dan Brown novel and most political debates have in common? They're both brilliant and thrilling. Just kidding. They're both really good at redirecting our attention away from what really matters. They make us forget about the most important and relevant questions that we should be asking at any given moment. In English, the idiom for this kind of distraction or false lead is a red herring. Whether deployed as a logical fallacy or a literary device, a red herring diverts our attention away from the matter at hand, often leading us to false conclusions. If you're familiar with Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, you might remember the character Bishop Aringa Rosa, who's portrayed as the main antagonist of the story until it's revealed that he's not. That character's surname, Aringa Rosa, is an approximate translation of the English idiom red herring into Italian. Aringa means herring, and Rosa means pink. Very clever, Mr. Brown. Very clever. Like the idioms we've investigated in this series, the connection between the literal and idiomatic meanings of red herring isn't clear to us at face value. We'll go down our usual etymological rabbit hole in just a minute, but first, what's a herring, and under what circumstances might we find a red one? Herring are a fish native to the North Atlantic, notable for moving in large schools along coastal regions. This travel pattern accounts for one etymology that derives the word herring from herry, an old high German word meaning multitude. An alternative theory suggests that herring is cognate with the Old English har, meaning gray, which is a reference to the fish's color. Regardless of its etymology, herring is ultimately of Germanic origin, as it has cognates universally distributed throughout the Germanic languages including German, Dutch, Frisian, and others. The word for herring in the Romance languages, such as arang in French and aringa in Italian, are also cognate with herring, but they're borrowed from this earlier Germanic source. Now, if you were to go fishing for herring, you wouldn't find any red ones. As already mentioned, herring are gray-colored fish. The term red herring actually refers to kipper, which is the term for a herring that has been split down the middle and dried, smoked, and cured in brine. The word kipper is sometimes used to refer to other fish prepared in this manner as well. The processes of kippering result in the fish turning a reddish color, hence red herring. 
The literal sense of red herring, referring to Kipper, dates all the way back to the mid-1200s, first attested in a poem by Walter of Bibsworth called The Treatise. In it, he writes, quote, He eateth no fish but herring red. End quote. Before modern refrigeration, fish had to be sold shortly after being caught or else they'd go bad, but the process of kippering allowed herring and other fish prepared in a similar fashion to last for months. While the process of kippering might have extended the time frame during which one could consume the fish, kipper still smelled like fish, and this distinctly pungent smell actually plays into a long-standing misunderstanding of the idiom's origins. Traditionally, the etymology of red herring, meaning a distraction, was believed to have originated in the training of scent hounds, that is, hunting dogs who are trained to hunt by scent rather than sight. The most common account of the etymology claims that, while training scent hounds how to sniff out animals like foxes or badgers, animals whose scents are faint and hard to detect, trainers would drag a red herring along the ground, leaving a pungent scent that would confuse the dog. The idea behind this is that, over time and after many repetitions, this confusion would actually train the hounds to stay focused on the scent that they're looking for without getting distracted by other stronger scents. Most etymological resources published in the 20th century rely on some version of the scent hound story to explain the idiomatic meaning of red herring. One variation, whose ultimate origins I can't pin down, claims that escapees from prison would use the pungent smell of red herring to cover their tracks and mislead the bloodhounds that chased after them. In fact, the 1981 edition of Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable states that the full version of the idiom is actually, quote, drawing a red herring across a path, end quote. Now, there's nothing wrong with the logic behind this etymology, if there were actually evidence to support it. The problem is, once you dig into the written record to trace the etymology of the red herring idiom, such as etymologists Gerald Cohen and Robert Scott Ross did in 2008, you find a few glaring discrepancies. In a couple of articles featured in the journal Comments on Etymology, Cohen and Ross pointed out that the Oxford English Dictionary which is usually the undisputed authoritative source on the historical usages of the English language, attributed the earliest idiomatic usage of red herring to a 1697 handbook called The Gentleman's Recreation by Nicholas Cox. However, upon even a cursory reading, it's apparent that Cox's usage isn't exactly idiomatic. Cox writes that, hounds were trained to follow a scent by dragging a red herring along the ground. He doesn't mention anything about using the scent of red herring to distract dogs. Furthermore, Cox's usage here isn't entirely his own. Ross's research has revealed that Cox lifted his red herring passage directly from a pamphlet on horsemanship published that same year by Gerland Landbane, and surprisingly, the original text actually describes the training of horses, not the training of hounds. In order to prepare horses for a real-life hunt, Landbane describes training them by dragging around dead cats or foxes. In the absence of an available cat or fox corpse, he says that a red herring is a fine substitute. Ostensibly, 
Cox read this pamphlet and then got his facts wrong when repurposing Lanbane's writing for his own publication later that year. It's unclear why the OED mistook Cox's usage of the phrase as idiomatic, but since then, the OED now supports Ross and Cohen's research. The excerpt from Cox's The Gentleman's Recreation isn't even the first usage of the phrase red herring used in connection with the training of hunting animals within the OED itself. Consider this entry in the OED from Thomas Nash's 1599, Nash's Lenten Stuff. Quote, Next, to draw on hounds to ascent, to a red herring skin there is nothing comparable. End quote. Like Cox and Lanebane's usage, this is a literal usage of the word red herring to simply mean a kipper. There's no disputing that there's a history of using red herring to train hunting animals, but that doesn't mean that they were used to deliberately confuse them as a part of that training. This might seem like a minor point, but the meaning of the red herring idiom is based on this very notion of a distraction. Which means, if we want to get to the bottom of this, we need to dig deeper. So, where did this sense of red herring, meaning a distraction, come from? We'll get to that right after a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Literati. Literati is a subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and interesting books for your kids by delivering great stories straight to your doorstep. Literati's home deliveries can help provide your child with the uplifting educational material they need amid the uncertainty of the coming weeks and months during quarantine. Each Literati box contains five beautiful books based on a theme and contains exclusive original art and a personalized note to your child. Literati actively curates stories that spark curiosity and soften the heart, which saves you hours of searching the store or scrolling through lists of mediocre books online, and Literati will beat the Amazon list price. Only keep your favorites and send back the rest for free. That means you're only paying for the books your kids love. You can even donate books you already own, and Literati will match every one you send. For a limited time, go to literati.com words for 25% off your first two orders. This is their best offer available anywhere. To get it, again, that's literati.com words. L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I dot com slash words. Okay, back to the show. The earliest attestation of an idiomatic sense of red herring can be traced back to a quote from a parliamentary speech given in 1782 that was later published in a 1786 volume called Beauties of the British Senate. It reads, quote, Though I have not the honor of being one of those sagacious country gentlemen who have so long vociferated for the American War, who have so long run on the red herring scent of American taxation before they found out there was no game on foot, they who, like their prototype, Don Quixote, have mistaken the barber's basin for a golden helmet. End quote. It's hard to say if this usage is a spontaneously created metaphor unique to the speaker, or if it was borrowed from the spoken language of the time, but regardless, it's undeniably a non-literal usage in which the scent of a red herring is being used to figuratively describe the distracting allure of American taxation. Note that there's no explicit connection between red herring and scent hounds here. The element of distraction comes from the political context in which the metaphor is introduced. 
While this parliamentary usage of the idiom is the oldest attestation currently known to us, it didn't exactly popularize the phrase. The idiomatic sense of red herring was popularized by William Cobbett, an influential journalist and member of parliament, in an article in an 1807 issue of the British periodical Political Register. Given the popularity of the false version of the scent hound etymology we just looked at, it's not surprising that Cobbett's widely read usage does describe distracting a hound, but it does not do so while training them how to hunt. He writes, long quote, When I was a boy, we used to, in order to draw off the harriers from the trail of a hare that we had set down as our own private property, get to the haunt early in the morning and drag a red herring tied to a string four or five miles over the hedges and ditches, across fields and through coppices, till we got to a point whence we were pretty sure the hunters would not return to the spot where they had thrown off. And, though I would, by no means, be understood as comparing the editors and proprietors of the London Daily Press to animals half so sagacious and so faithful as hounds, I cannot help thinking that, in the case to which we are referring, they must have been misled, at first by some political deceiver. End quote. So, as we can see, Cobbett's reference to using red herring to distract hounds is anecdotal. For all we know, it could be completely fabricated. The fact that Cobbett uses his anecdotal red herring story as a metaphorical critique of the English press, who, for your context, had just reported false information about the defeat of Napoleon, suggests that he may have been familiar with the earlier usage in the parliamentary speech given in 1782. This supposition can further be supported by the fact that Cobbett himself was a member of Parliament, as I already mentioned. In a later publication in the 1830s, Cobbett used the red herring metaphor again, implying that either by virtue of his article or forces undetectable by the written record, the idiomatic usage had caught on. It's worth noting that when the idiom crossed the Atlantic into American English in the mid-1800s, its first usage, which appeared in the New York Times, was also political in nature. Quote, But when the emperor found that England would not join him in a war, he cleverly started the red herring of the Congress, which he knew well enough was out of the question, but which has admirably answered his purpose of creating a diversion. End quote. The idiom's early traction in the realm of politics is still reflected in its usage today. However, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, the red herring is commonly used as a literary device to mislead readers, usually in mystery or suspense novels. The term first started appearing in reference to literature with the rise in popularity of Sherlock Holmes and detective stories in general. The Sherlock Holmes story, Hound of the Baskervilles, is one of the most classic case studies of the red herring as a literary device. Thus far, our etymological investigation of red herring has brought up a lot having to do with scent hounds. But what if the trail we've been following all along has been something of a red herring of its own? There is another theory that accounts for the origins of the term that follows a completely different thread. Jasper Maine was an aristocratic English clergyman who dabbled in translation, drama, poetry, and, apparently, practical jokes. At the time of his death in 1672, his will included philanthropic bequeathments to St. Paul's Cathedral, several poor parishes, and one of his servants. This servant was promised, quote, 
something that would make him drink after his death, end quote, and that it would be found in a particular trunk. When the servant found said trunk and opened it, there was a red herring inside. Now, the phrase red herring doesn't appear in Maine's will or in any surviving documents written by Maine himself, but this story is preserved in the Poetical Register by Giles Jacob, an overview of the poets and poetry throughout English history, published in 1719, and it does indeed include the phrase red herring. Whether or not this story is true is besides the point, because what the Poetical Register provides is the earliest example in which a red herring is associated with a false lead. While a false lead isn't identical in meaning to a distraction, the two are closely linked, and a phrase meaning the former could easily evolve into a phrase meaning the latter. The Poetical Register's usage of red herring isn't idiomatic in and of itself. It merely recounts a story involving a practical joke involving, literally, a red herring. But given a wide enough circulation, the story could have become well-known and caught on in the spoken language as an idiom for a false lead before being recorded in the written record about 50 years later in Beauties of the British Senate. A coincidence? I don't know. It's very possible that this anecdote incidentally brought more awareness to the practice of using red herring to train hunting dogs, and that the deceptive context of the Jasper Main story caused people to falsely believe that red herrings were used as a tool of deception or distraction. This sequence of events could even have influenced the anecdotal story told in William Cobbett's 1807 article that actually popularized the idiom. Though a plausible story, it's unverifiable, at least with the evidence currently available to us. Sometimes we can't put our finger precisely on where an idiom comes from, because its emergence and standardization are actually multifactorial. If you listen to the episode on Break a Leg from this series, you may recall that the idiom has several plausible etymologies, all of which have their own context and separate attestations in the written record. What I suggested in that episode is that we probably shouldn't pit these etymologies against each other in search of the one true etymology, but rather we should take into consideration how they all could have contributed to the eventual standardization of the idiom. The potential etymologies of break a leg are both greater in number and complexity than the two etymologies for red herring suggested here, but I think we could still approach the scent hound and Jasper Main etymologies with a similar synthetic mindset. Many etymological sources discredit the Jasper Main story as a folk etymology, but I think that throwing it out the window altogether underestimates the undeniable fact that seemingly insignificant incidents, such as this, cause idioms and words to catch on in the spoken language all the time. And this could happen years or even decades before they become standardized or written down. Alright, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to the podcast because those really help the show grow and give me feedback about what I can do better. I'm on Twitter at, at @wordsforgranted and Facebook as Words for Granted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Again, I'd like to remind you that you can support the show at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or with a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Okay, have a great day. I'll talk to you again soon.